Welcome to the Australian Hiker Podcast, Australia's longest running hiking podcast, downloaded over three quarters of a million times in 150 countries and providing you with an Australian perspective on all things hiking. We're your hosts, Tim and Jill Savage. This is episode 233 of the Australian Hiker Podcast. And in this episode, we discuss beach and coastal hiking. Before we get into today's episode, if you'd like to help support Australian Hiker and this podcast, there are a couple of ways that you can help us out. Firstly, by subscribing on your podcast host of choice so that each episode is available as soon as it's published. And if you have the opportunity, leave us a five-star review. Another way to support us is go to the Australian Hiker website at www.australianhiker.com.au and click on the supporters page and buy us a coffee. You can do a one-off donation or become a monthly supporter. All donations are greatly appreciated and help us to continue producing this podcast and blog. Now let's get on to today's episode. Now this may seem like a strange topic for a hiking blog to discuss, but there are a number of walks both in Australia and overseas that either have small sections or large sections of a beach and rock platform that people access. And I must admit, I hadn't really given too much thought uh, to this. I have spent a lot of time, in fact, we both spent a lot of time working and playing in and around oceans. And we really don't tend to think about a lot of the skills required to walk along beaches and rock platforms or for crossing inlets. It's just something we tend to do. On our recent Great Ocean Walk in Victoria, we came across a European hiker who hadn't had a lot of experience in hiking around the coastline, wasn't really confident about hiking around inlets. And this is what really drove home that this is a topic that's not really discussed. And in all honesty, when we did a search on the internet to find out some other examples, we just couldn't find anything. So it was, we thought it was time to actually uh, discuss this as a topic. One comment I would make here is that it's worthwhile following along in the write-up of this podcast because it does have images that will be make things a bit more easy to understand and explain. We hope you enjoy. Now, rather than assuming that most people know about terms that relate to the ocean, we just want to go through and identify at least a few key ones to make sure everyone's on the same page. The first one is inlet. And again, an inlet really, come, when it comes down to, is a body of water that comes off land in most cases and meets the ocean. This sort of covers to the extent of streams, rivers to a point, but not big, big wide rivers, and they can be something that's closed off at certain times of the year or open at other times of the year, depending on how the sand builds up where it meets the ocean. Yeah, most people would have seen an inlet of some kind. Um, We probably don't think too much of the really small ones, but they are inlets and, um, you know, we've probably had a little bit more experience than we realise with those it's, it's the bigger ones and the ones that get impacted by the uh, weather and also the sea conditions that are an issue for hikers. From here, we move on to tides. Now, tides are the rise and fall of sea levels caused by the combined effects of the forces exerted by mainly the moon, but also the sun. And if you are doing a coastal walk, so again, I come back to the example of the Great Ocean Walk in Victoria, tides can be a major consideration when walking along beaches or rock platforms. 
And particularly if your chosen route is very dependent on being able to access those areas without having being flooded or impacted by water. Now, there is a number of different types of tides that we really want to look at. And the, the main ones here are high tide, which is when the, the tide is at its highest point. Uh, and typically, that's when the uh, you, you're finding it's being impacted mainly by the moon in particular. Low tide, and this is when the sea is at its lowest level in a particular place. And one comment I would make here is there's not one tide chart for the entire world. It's very dependent on the local area. We've provided a link in our write-up of this uh, podcast, uh, and it takes you through to the Bureau of Meteorology. And they, uh, when you click on the link, it takes you to a map which has these little pins virtually around the entire Australian coastline. And you pick the one that's closest to you because, again, the high will be low or high depending on the area you're in, not over the same country at the same time. King tide. Now, king tides are the highest tides and they're also the lowest tides and they're generally naturally occurring and relatively easily to, easy to predict, but it can have a major impact on your hiking. So really in relation to this, you need to know when high tide is and when low tide is. So having a tide chart, particularly on a walk that is impacted by uh, tidal forces and that you will be walking along coastline is particularly important. One thing you need to be aware of through here is that the heights of things like tides can be greatly impacted by local weather patterns. So if it's blowing a gale and coming on land, it's pushing a lot of the ocean water inland and, and, and increasing the height of inlets. Or if there's been heavy rains like we're getting in Australia at the time of recording this podcast, again, there'll be a lot of water coming down to meet the ocean and the, uh, the inlets can be quite high. But we'll talk about inlets more specifically in a moment. So how do you choose when to do a beach and rock platform option? And in fact, if that is an option. Now, with most designated walks that are, involve uh, beach access, there's quite often an option to walk along the trail or to walk along a rock platform or a beach. And which you choose to do is going to depend on a number of factors. For me, I will choose to walk along a, a rock platform or a, a beach if the conditions are good, if it's uh, – and again, good for me doesn't necessarily mean sunny and no wind. I quite actually like walking along beaches in, in stormy sort of conditions. But I, what I don't want to be doing is is walking through really choppy surf, having nowhere to go in case the, the water is coming right up against the dunes. It's arbitrary what I consider to be good conditions – uh, but uh, from my perspective, it's got to be safe. And if it's not safe, oh, that, that's definitely a reason for me not to uh, uh, go along a beach. Yeah, my preference is always to do the beach or the rock platform uh, as long as it's safe. But uh, if you know both options are good, I'll always go beach, rock platform. It's probably not something that Tim will do. He d- doesn't like sand in his shoes for some reason. I don't understand okay. that, but... Um, yeah, I mean, I just prefer that kind of walking. And the other reason I'll choose uh, whether or not I walk along a beach, and I, and this is a bit of a, an arbitrary reason here, is just because. Sometimes, <laughs> sometimes I just don't feel like walking along the uh, the beach. See, uh, there you go. I uh, said that. <laughs> uh, uh, but other times it might be that if you're walking along the beach, you're not getting views from up above down to the beach and down to the ocean. So if, you've, if you're doing a walk, and again, I'll use the Great Ocean Walk here, we had – 
designated trail up on the cliff looking down. We also had trails that actually took in the beaches themselves. But you know, we when we did this walk, there were a lot of heavy rains and very blowy sort of conditions, and some of the uh, the access points just weren't really an option. If it is a designated walk that takes into account beach or rock platform access, they'll normally have warning signs there saying do not access in 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 poor conditions, or they'll say check the conditions before you do this section and take the alternate route if there is an alternate route, and there's not always the case. The alternate route might be walk out to the road and either walk along the road and bypass or give up and come back at a later stage. So not every walk has an option to do this. And in fact, in Western Australia, when I did the Bibbulmun track in 2018, I came across a sign that said, warning, uh, recommended you take the road option. At the point I saw this sign, I could actually see down the beach. It wasn't high tide for another few hours, but the water was coming right up almost to the dune level. Uh, and um, I thought, this has still got a couple of hours to go before <laughs> high tide. And there, when the dunes were so high, there was just nowhere to go. So I, all I could see was me being trapped on the beach, getting getting saturated from the, the waves coming up. And that was assuming the waves weren't dangerous. So in this option there... I opted for a road walk. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, I think when it's uh, at that point where it's clearly unsafe, it's it's very obvious and people would go, yep, yeah, no, I'm not, not going to do that. There, there is a bit of a challenge though because it can become unsafe. So it looks okay perhaps to some people who don't have uh, as much experience and then partway through they may discover that the water's coming in faster than they thought or the conditions were different to what they looked when you were looking up and looking down. So, you know, it it is a very changeable environment. That's probably one of the things that I would say. And uh, you have to be very conscious of what's happening around you and the potential for it to change. Now, once you've actually made the decision to walk along the the coastal route, there's a couple of different areas we can look at from here. And the first one is sand walking. Uh, So when we talk about beaches, beaches tend to include sand and rock, uh, but we're specifically talking about walking along sand. And there is a diagram in the write-up that sort of uh, shows you the zones we're just about to talk about. Now, we've actually broken this up into four zones, and this is nothing that... Uh, is is set or scientific is just how we've interpreted and how we see beaches that we've come across. So zone one we've classed as you're pretty much walking in areas where if you don't watch the waves and the waves come up, you get wet. <laughs> you uh, get wet feet. You, you, get at wet, you at least get wet feet, yeah. So we're still in an area where the, the water's coming up and down the beach and in this area you are getting wet. And at that stage, there's that much water typically that the sand is really soft and sludgy. You tend to be a bit more slow going and you do really need to pay really close attention. One of the quotes that we uh, identified for doing this uh, podcast and write-up was never turn your back on the ocean. And if you're walking in this sort of area, you definitely don't want to be doing that because, again, you can get freak waves coming through without warning. And if you're working this close to the ocean, you want to be paying really close attention. Yeah, and those waves don't necessarily have to be large waves. Uh, Sometimes they can be relatively shallow, uh, but there's a lot of pull to the water. So you'll feel the pressure of the water pulling you in, even if it, you know, only gets to ankle deep. 
From here, we move on to zone two, and this is what we class as the Goldilocks zone. This is sand that's usually firm because it's got moisture on it, but the, the water's not actually coming up onto this point, or, or in, in most cases, it's not. It's a fairly solid sort of sand, so it's easier to walk. You're not sinking into it. Uh, you still need to pay attention to the ocean, and sometimes you may have to sort of move up the beach fairly quickly because a, a slightly bigger surge is coming through, but it's not this soft, sludgy sort of stuff that you, you're going to get closer to the ocean. As I said, you still need to pay attention to what's going on with the wave action, uh, but this is a good area to be walking in. From here, we're moving up into class. what we're classing as Zone 3, and this is where the water rarely, if ever, reaches. It's the really soft sort of sand at the top of the beach, a uh, lot of undulations, and it's really hard walking. Now, if you've got a weighted pack on, uh, it's something you typically try and avoid because it's going to slow you down. It's a good place to train for fitness. Uh, if you want to do fitness training for hiking, take a loaded pack on and walk in this area. You don't have to cover big distances because you're going to, you, your leg muscles are really going to get a workout in this area. One thing of note here is on the Great Ocean Walk, there were signs on some of the beaches that said uh, a particular type of plover nests in this area. And usually, uh, many years ago, people didn't wander around these beaches for recreation. Uh, but as beaches have become more popular, you try and avoid this area, particularly during nesting season, uh, because the, the plovers have their, their eggs virtually out in the open in the sand. And if you don't see them, you're going to end up destroying them. Now, from here, we move into Zone 4, or what we're classing as the sand dunes. These dunes can either be quite shallow, they can be quite narrow, only being you know just one dune and that's it, or they can be quite deep. Uh, quite often, they can have vegetation, and this is where your vegetation starts. But they can also be quite fragile as well, because the sand's often being blown off them or building up. And if you're walking through them, you can actually do a bit of damage. So you'll often, it's not unusual to come across signs in a lot of areas saying re-vegetation re zone or uh, keep out of the dunes unless there's a designated path in there. Now, the zones we've been talking about really are a generalisation. You will typically get the sort of zones we've described on most beaches. However, there are always exceptions to the rule. And again, in the write-up, we have a lovely photo of one of the beaches on uh, the Kangaroo Island Wilderness Trail. And this beach had ocean, it had zone one, and then straight to zone three before it hit the dunes. There was no firm sand. It did not matter where we walked on the beach. It was either soft and wet or soft and dry. And we got to the stage where we were actually, there was three of us hiking together and we ended up walking in each other's footsteps because that made it a bit easier. Yeah, and that was a bit tricky because um, Tim was out in front. We had to tell him to take smaller steps. Um, so I and um, our uh, female hiking friend um, could actually <laughs> accommodate the the pace because it was pretty tough. Let me tell you, and it was long. There was like that was a long stretch of sand that we had to walk. I think on. it was roughly about almost just on two kilometres, and which doesn't sound a lot, but when you've got a weighted pack and you're having to walk in really soft sand, as I said, really good fitness training. It's not something you generally tend to do for, for fun and enjoyment. Yeah, and that one was also an interesting one because uh, we were expecting a really, really hot day. Um, so we had to hit the dune or hit the beach quite early and, um, yeah, get, get it over and, and done with before the day heated up. 
Now, from the sand, we move into rock walking, and this is uh, can either be associated with the, the sand or sep- totally separate. Now, walking on rock platforms is a skill within itself because in most cases, it, particularly if the rocks are closer to the ocean rather than being up high, the rocks will often be wet in some areas, dry in others. There'll be pools of water. Uh, there'll be seaweed. There'll be variable slopes. Sometimes the rock can be really smooth and slippery. Other times it's coarse and it has really good grip on it. Uh, so it's not unusual if you're not paying attention to slip over in these sort of areas. Um, so in, in the case of um, the image in the uh, the photos of the, in the write-up, Jill uses her track is using her tracking poles. I tend not to when I'm walking on rocks. Uh, it's just personal preference, but the choice is up to yours. I mean, one of the risks with using tracking poles in rocks is if you're not looking where you're putting the poles, the tips can get trapped. Mm. Uh, so you you do have to pay a bit more attention to not only where your feet are going, but also where the tracking poles are going as well. Yeah, I do have to fess up and say that the poles didn't stop me from falling over, so <laughs> I landed on my backside a couple of times. Yeah. Now we get on to inlet crossing, and this for a lot of people is probably one of the most difficult things or the difficult, most worrying skills they ever have to think about from a hiking perspective. It's a skill we tend not to think about. You know, when we're talking about bushwalking, we tend not to have to worry about crossing inlets. Occasionally we might have to cross rivers or creeks, but inlets tend to be a very different sort of thing. Now, my comment here would be, uh, and I'll say this first and foremost, if in doubt, if you think it's going to be unsafe, if you're just not happy, look at your options and your alternatives. And it may be that you've got to turn back and go back the way you've came. You may have to walk out to a road and go around. You may have to wait until the tides have changed before you can do this. Uh, but if there's any sort of doubt at all, um, safety first is the is the real key here. Now, to help you in relation to inlet crossing uh, is to do your research. So on the Great Ocean Walk, we knew we had two inlets we needed to cross. There are actually a couple of others there, but I mean, there were so t- the other the two of them were so tiny they really didn't class as inlets. They were almost just shallow creeks, but two of them were quite noticeable. And in the guidebook, there was one that uh, one inlet, which is Parker Inlet, that said at its highest, it potentially can be about head height. Now, on the day we crossed it, the water was probably around about 60, maybe 70 centimetres deep, which was quite reasonable. Um, but if you look at the video of me crossing, uh, and Jill was standing on one bank while I was crossing, taking this video, uh, you can see when I'm uh, at the, the deepest point, uh, there's a sand bank on the other side which shows the impact of water movement, uh, which is slightly above my head. And I'm 1.85 metres in height. So this means that the highest the water ever gets is almost two metres in depth. And this means you're pretty much going to be swimming across. You're not going to be walking across. It means that you're going to have to be focused on how you get your gear across and keep everything dry and make sure there's no strong tides or currents that are going to take you out into the ocean. Now, for those sort of tides to occur, really what you need is heavy rains prior, so there's a lot of water coming downstream, strong wind conditions uh, that are pushing, that are driving the ocean into the inlet, 
and a king tide all sort of combining at the same time. And that's when you would expect to get water of that sort of depth. Um, but it's something you do need to be conscious of. So if you're planning on doing that walk, I downloaded the tide chart prior to doing the walk. I knew when low tide was, so we made sure we crossed. We ended up crossing about an hour and a half after low tide, but that would still work out fine. But we wouldn't have wanted to cross at high tide at a king tide because we, you know it would have been on me at least sort of chest depth, uh, which would have mean Jill, Jill would have been swimming. She couldn't have been walking to get there. Yeah, and I think, you know, there was still – it wasn't a king tide and the conditions weren't, you know, extreme. Um, you know, with high tide it would have been worse. But there was still a lot of pull in the water. So, you know, that's the other thing that even if it's not that deep, you have to be mindful of uh, the movement of the water and that can potentially make you uh, unstable and you, you could potentially uh, trip over or fall. And we'll talk about one of the other inlet crossings in a moment just to show you the difference of what can occur. So apart from doing the research, you need to sort of have an indication of what and how inlets tend to be formed. So inlets will often build up sand and silt. Uh, so the silt's being washed downstream with all the fresh water. The sand is being pushed in by the, the wave of action coming in from the ocean. And where these two points meet, you'll often get a buildup of this material so it's not unusual for inlets to be closed at certain times of the year, either permanently or at least for part of a year. So the best place to cross an inlet in, in most cases, not all cases, but in most cases is with this meeting point, which is typically the start of the ocean proper. So for me, when I cross an inlet, it's not unusual to spend 20, 30, 40 minutes walking up and down, seeing where the best places are, having a look and see where the water movement is uh, to work out the best crossing point. The darker the water, the deeper it is. So you're tending to be look at, looking at lighter coloured water. So in the case of Parker Inlet, 20 or 30 metres upstream, it was dark all the way from one side to the other. Where we crossed, which was not quite, not right where the ocean met the, uh, the, the inlet, but it wasn't far away from that, there was a dark point in the middle and it was light either side. So that meant it was shallow for at least more of the, the, the crossing than we would have had to worry about. Yeah, sometimes that can get a bit tricky because you can have uh, water that's been discoloured by tannins, by the vegetation. Um, so that does make it a little bit tricky, but... Um, you know, this the, the same uh, principle applies. Now, when you cross, make sure all your gear is secure. And there's a couple of things here. You don't want to be holding stuff in your hands or having stuff hanging off your pack. It wants to be either tied up. So in my case, if you watch, go to the write-up, you'll see a video of me crossing Parker Inlet. My shoelaces are tie physically tied onto the back of my pack. I was confident I knew what the bottom of the, the water was like. It was a soft, sandy sort of bottom. So I was happy to cross without shoes, uh, but that's not always the case. Sometimes I will wear shoes when I cross. I also chose to take my pants off. I didn't have... That was a sight for everybody. It was <laughs> lucky we were on the beach by ourselves, wasn't it? I, I didn't have uh, pants with zip-off legs, and I didn't want to spend the rest of the day walking in, sopping wet lower legs on my pants. So I took my pants off, put them into my pack, whereas Jill, when she crossed... Uh, she had pants with zip-off legs and she managed to cross and keep the bottom of, of, the, of her shorts on that version of pants relatively dry. 
Before you cross, you want to unclip your pack and loosen the shoulder harnesses. Now, the reason for this is if there's any sort of water movement and you or you end up tripping over, you, you basically end up face down with a heavy weighted pack on you. Uh, and the last thing you want to be doing as you're struggling to get breath is to try and work out where the clips are on your pack and how to get it off. So, um, and you don't want to lose your gear, obviously, uh, but your own safety is... You also is, don't want to drown. <laughs> yeah, your own safety is the priority. So unclip the, undo the waistband, unclip the, shoulder, the, the, the sternum strap and loosen the shoulder straps off lightly. If you're travelling in a group, have the tallest person cross first. That way you find where the deepest point is. You've got a marker. You've got a, you've got a marker, yep. No, no good sending, sending the shortest person over and finding out it's, it's 1.5 metres deep. And they're 1.5 <laughs> metres tall. Yeah, so um, it at least gives you an indication. And the other thing is when uh, we were doing the Great Ocean Walk, Tim uh, did cross ahead of me and – uh, if if you look at the video, you'll see that he actually found slightly deeper water to what I found. So I watched him, and then it was it it enabled me to go well. If I go just a little bit to one side, and I went a little bit to the right of where he crossed, um, and it was much shallower there. Yeah. So if uh, if you are travelling as a uh, as a group. Uh, and there's any sort of um, concern about how much water pressure is, is coming in and out of the inlet, crosses a pair. So link your arms. It makes you much more stable and makes it easier to get across. One of the things you want to do, and this is a real temptation here, sometimes you'll be crossing a very shallow inlet and the temptation is, oh, look, there's some rocks. I'll just hop from rock to rock. Typically, the rocks, unless they're very rough sort of uh, rock, uh, if they're smooth, they're going to be really slippery. So it's better off just walking through the water and getting slightly wet up to your knees or below up to your calves than trying to stay totally dry. If you rock hop on smooth rocks, you're going to end up getting saturated. You'll end up falling in the water. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, and potentially hurting yourself on the rocks. So uh, coming back to the point that we made at the start, if there's any doubt about your safety or you're not confident, uh Leave it till a lower tide or turn around and go back. One comment to make here in relation to inlet crossing, we were aware that we had inlet crossing. I do carry a reasonable amount of electronics as a blogger. And while I have a pack liner both in the, the main body of my pack and also my pack brain, I tend to get a bit of overkill here and I'll bring a large 90-litre pack liner and I put my pack inside the uh, the pack liner and, and roll it up nice and tight. So it's virtually a liner on the inside, a liner on the outside. Normally, I don't tend to worry about this on the shallower uh, crossings, but if I know that it is going to be quite high and I'm, I'm going to need to take my pack off and ho either hold it on my shoulders or above my head, in that sort of instance, I want to make sure that there's no water going to get anywhere near there, not just because of the electronics, but I also don't want my sleeping bag and all my clothing getting wet as well. And potentially, you know, if, if the water's fulsome enough, you can uh, float your, your pack anyway. So, you know, that's another option. You can uh, keep the, even though it's sealed, keep the opening up, um, but take the pressure off the pack by, you know, having it slightly submerged in, in the water. You want to be able to hang on to it. Um, again, you don't want it floating away, but that's, that's another option. But again, these are extreme options.
So as I said, the concept for this article came from our trip on the Great Ocean Walk and coming across a hiker that wasn't familiar with hiking in these sort of conditions. And as I said, from, from most people, we talk about bushwalking and bushwalking implies you're walking through the Australian bush. The bush. <laughs> yeah, you're not walking on beaches or you're not crossing inlets. And this is just part of it. Um, sometimes you may need to cross rivers or strong streams. And we'll talk about that separately because there are some different practices here that you need to deal with. And a good example here was when I did the uh, walked on the Tasmanian Trail, uh, I came across a river crossing that I just wasn't game to do from a safety perspective. So- yeah, he sent me a video uh, uh, of the the water running and, you know, the question was, will I? <laughs> uh, no. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was pretty obvious and he knew that. I think it's one of these sort of things that, you know, you don't automatically build up these skills overnight. And there's a couple of ways you can go through improving your skills and ability in these sort of conditions. The most obvious one is hike with someone that's more experienced. So as I said, the European hiker that that, uh, we met, uh, we offered, uh, you know, for her to join up. uh, And we helped her through that uh, uh, the next day through the second inlet crossing. Now, the second inlet crossing was actually shallower than the first one, uh, and it was a bit stra- a bit more strange in some respect where we watched it. There was uh, five small surges that came up uh, and then a big wave. Uh, and when I say big, it wasn't huge, but it was a big surge of water. And we, we, we watched this a number of times. We crossed, and then the time we chose to cross, it was three waves and a surge. So we were standing in the middle of the inlet. Uh, the water was only around about uh, just on knee depth, but we had to brace. Uh, if we had have tried to walk, we would have been knocked off our feet, but bracing was fine. The water hit us coming in and then hit us coming back out. And as soon as it had gone, we, we were able to walk and continue on from there. Yeah, there was a lot of pull in that water. And, and I guess, again, this was the thing that prompted us uh, to do this episode because when we – uh, said to that person that you know if um, uh, if you feel that pull and you feel a little bit unstable um, to stop and uh, it was a bit hard to explain and convince that stopping was a good thing. <laughs> uh, they did it and uh, you know did did, did it well, um, uh, but there were some moments before uh, we we got to that point that they they just looked at us and thought. You Aussies are crazy. (laughs) You could tell that's what they were thinking. So, again, if you're planning on doing these sort of walks and you don't have much experience with inlet crossing, go with somebody or go with a group that does that can help you out or else pick walks that have really shallow sort of inlets and build yourself up. We did the wharf to wharf walk from Tarthra to Marimbula earlier this year and I had three inlet crossings. Uh, the first one I managed to get across it in only around about 100 mils of water. The second one I crossed was probably just below uh, knee level and the third one was about crotch level. Uh, thankfully, that was the very last one of the day <laughs> and I only had about a kilometre left to walk so it wasn't having to spend the whole day and it was you know, it was in the cooler part of the year uh, so I didn't have to worry about you know, getting changed or freezing to death. So, you know, it's the sort of thing that uh, building up and, and gaining that experience as you do progressively deeper sort of uh, conditions. Uh, but again, knowing when those tide times are there 
and picking the right times to cross. Okay, we hope this has been helpful. And as we said, it's worthwhile going to the written version of this podcast to have a look at the images and have a look at the videos uh, of Inlet Crossing that might make things a bit more self-explanatory. That's all for this week. We hope you've enjoyed. Bye for now. And bye from me.